0: How's it going everybody? Travis McKenzie here again. I've been at the I'm Curious To Know project for three weeks now, and I'm so grateful for the incredible humans I've been able to have these conversations with. I've learned so much over these 21 days, and I hope you have too. Today's guest is Alex Diebold, professional snowboarder, Olympic medalist and radical human. He's recently spent the last few weeks supporting his parents in Vermont. And we talk about the interesting dynamic between parent and child, especially as our parents and we grow older. I was also curious to know how Alex got his start in snowboarding and his journey to becoming an Olympian, and how his work ethic has translated into a long and successful career. Perhaps most importantly, we talk about Alex's struggle with depression and sadness and the acknowledgement that it's okay not to be okay all the time. Thanks, Alex, for your vulnerability and for being an example worth following. I appreciate you being here. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is uh is alex diebold i'm so glad that he's wearing a hat because usually it's a bit of a hair competition between him and i he usually wins so i'm glad he's wearing a hat alex how are you mate oh
1: Trav, good, good to be here thanks uh, the hat is on in full quarantine effect it has been a long time since i've been able to get in and see my barber slash stylist
0: i hear you i uh did a self-cut maybe four weeks ago i think i'm due Barbershops and stylists and hairstylists have, are open here in Massachusetts as of Monday. I'm not sure I'm willing to risk it just yet. I don't know if the reward's quite there to, to take on the, the risk of that. So I might do another self-cut on the weekend. Uh, if you are going to do a self-cut, if, I would recommend doing it outside. We're still finding hair in the bathroom four weeks later. My
1: hair has sort of become a thing. And it's interesting because I I was fortunate to go to an event in New York City where I went to a very high-end salon and we were getting ready for this like black tie event that evening. And I walked in and I had this like mop of a hairstyle. I basically said to the stylist, like, do whatever you want. Like, I'm going to, I'm wearing a a, a black, you know, going to a black tie event tonight, like style me up. And it's just something that stuck. Yeah. And before that, I actually ran the home haircut for a number of years. It It really was like sort of my go-to for a long time. But then with great hair comes great responsibility. And so I've just had to sort of upkeep since then.
0: Yeah. Or put a hat on perfect hair or hat (laughs) there's no in between um we won't spend 45 minutes talking about hair there's a lot of uh, other things we want to cover Uh, i want to talk about your current situation you are in vermont you're with your parents you're there supporting um your mom and your dad
1: yeah it's interesting you know I i was born and raised in new england when i was quite young i moved out west i lived in colorado for almost 10 years then utah and i'm actually now based in los angeles And I don't spend nearly the amount of time like back home with my folks as I'd like. With the, you know, the pandemic, the the world really slowed down. And I saw it as an opportunity to to come out and spend some more time on the East Coast with my parents and sort of help my dad. My mom has had uh, some lung issues for almost two years now. You know, it's it's really challenging. Um, She's on a, a transplant list, which is sort of a eternal waiting game. Like, you're on the list. We might give you a call and you have four hours to get to the hospital. Yeah. But that's it. And so, uh, being able to have some slow time to come out here and support my dad and caring for my mom, getting to just like spend some more time with her, it's been incredibly challenging. It has really opened my eyes to what it takes to be a caregiver. I'm not a parent. Your parents are on these pedestals for so long. And it gets to this point where uh, the roles really start to change. And I, I think it's been harder for her than it has for me. You know, at first it was really challenging and more than anything, like I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful that I get to be here and take care of somebody that has given me everything. Yeah. And uh, I'm really fortunate to have a, a strong relationship with my parents. And it's just, yeah, it's been, it's been challenging, but it's been really good to be back in Vermont. I've gone gotten, gotten soft. I'll be totally, totally honest with you. Moving out West, Colorado, Utah, like especially now being in a Los Angeles. I have gotten soft, and the springtime out here was was tough. It's yeah. Definitely hardened me back up.
0: Well, I've I've been on the east coast. This is my second winter, um, and yeah, I struggled too. Like it's, I think it was that um, that piece of being inside. You know, not really being able to get out. It rained for what felt like ever. But then I look out at my window here, and it's green and it's beautiful, and the sun's shining, and you kind of forget about all of that stuff. I don't think I'll ever be used to it. You know, having grown up in Australia, I don't think my blood will ever adapt to the New England, the Northeast winters. Back to the thought around your mom. And I know, you know, there's, there's people who have seen their parents kind of get ill or get sick or what have you, and they've, they've had to take on that role. How do you kind of reconcile that with yourself? You know, you're there, you're taking care of them. The whole world feels like it's burning. There's so many other things you've got on your plate. And then you're there just in the middle of it.
1: It has been a really valuable lesson for me. When I was in my early 20s, I had, a, I had a bit of friction with my parents because I wanted them to do things the way that I saw were best. The frustrations I had with them were partially their traits that I saw in me that I was frustrated with. And so I've moved as I've gotten older, I've been able to like move into this phase of acceptance and yep. love. Just appreciating for them who they are. You know, like both my parents are in their 60s. They're not going to change their organizational habits, they're not going to change their routines. And I just need to embrace and love them for who they are because they have been incredibly supportive over my life. But the challenge has really been the balance of taking, helping support, take care of my mom. And I'm, I'm not a natural like caregiver. I'm not a, I'm not a great cook. As yeah. an athlete, you know, a lifelong athlete, you become pretty self-centered. I get into my systems. I get very particular. And then coming out here, I had to learn my mom's systems, my dad's routine. There have been a lot of days that have been incredibly challenging, just like emotionally, mentally, trying to balance supporting them, a career, training. I think the thing that's been the biggest help is I have a really good support network of people around me that remind me I have forced myself to make time to try and take care of myself yeah like I can give and give and give and give and you will reach a you will reach a breaking point at some Mm -hmm. some point or another and being able to step away and get on my bike go for a workout or like even if it's just like go into a, a into my room and scroll through social media for a little bit but like cutting myself a break and and taking half an hour or an hour to myself to just recharge so that I can show up better. You can't just give and give and give all the time. It really took a toll on me. And so I have really been purposeful in taking moments to take care of myself. And then I, I think I show up a lot better for them. Yeah.
0: Two lessons that I heard from you there. One is that, that ability to be able to prioritize what you need in taking those moments for yourself because then you do show up more powerfully for the people that need you but also the challenge like even if you know your parents aren't sick your parents are healthy being in their environment as an adult and having your own ways and having your own systems as you describe is challenging as it is let alone having to deal with the fact that you know you need to be more careful and take care of your mom you did talk about your athletics. You did talk about your sport and training. And we haven't even got there, but I want to hear, you know, a little bit about your story. You grew up in Vermont, as you mentioned, you went to Stratton Mountain School. Um, you were on snowboard a uh, snowboard for when you were four years old. At what point did you realize that you had some talent? And what at what point did you realize maybe I want to be an Olympian or I wanna take this as far as I can go in in that sport?
1: Skiing and snowboarding has been a way of life for my family. I was incredibly fortunate. started skiing at age two, snowboarding at age four. I caught the competitive bug sort of on my own. Neither of my parents are particularly competitive. I won the first event that I did, and I was just like, cool, this is fun. The time period in which I realized that I might have some potential was probably around 13 or 14 years old. I went to um, USASA uh, National Championships. It's the, the largest amateur snowboard event in the world. And... Uh, I happened to get on the podium there. I got third. I got invited to apply to Stratton Mountain School. And that was when things sort of clicked. Like, this is a fun thing I do on the weekends. And now maybe there's a chance to take it a little bit more seriously. My family re- relocated here to Vermont. I went to Stratton Mountain School. And when I graduated, I got one college acceptance letter. And I got a letter in the mail inviting me to the US, uh, onto the U.S. national team. I had always wanted to be an Olympian. I kind of didn't really care I, there wasn't always just one thing. I loved playing tons of different sports. The first like real Olympic hook for me that I remember was the 96 games in Atlanta. They were summer games. Michael Johnson had his, uh, his famous like golden shoes, broke the world records. Yeah. And uh, the Magnificent Seven, the gymnast, there's Kerry Strug like does the vault with a broken ankle. I think I was 10 years old and I was like, this is what I want. Like I want to be on the on, this stage. It was just so inspiring to me. And so I'd always just, I'd wanted to be an Olympian. Yeah. I was named to the national team in 2004. I was 18 years old. Snowboard cross, the discipline that I compete in uh, had just been added to the Olympics. It's just interesting to think about it in hindsight. Now the timing was, I I was really fortunate the way that things just sort of lined up in my life.
0: Now tell me about that kind of serendipitous. You start out the Olympics name, or it becomes an Olympic sport. What were you doing kind of before that? We was brought across, something that was still uh a discipline of the sport but just not quite yet in the Olympics.
1: I I really got my like start in snowboarding and freestyle, so slope style. Like that was my thing as a, as a, just as a kid. My parents never pushed me in a particular direction. They just wanted me to enjoy what I was doing. Slope style was sort of my discipline of choice and I uh just found natural success in that. That's what I had gone to Stratton Mountain School for was for freestyle, so I, I competed in a lot of slope style and half hype. But what was really important to my coaches at Stratton Mountain School was being a well-rounded athlete, being a well-rounded snowboarder. And so I actually competed in all five disciplines. I, I took up uh, racing alpine both GS and slalom and uh, and then snowboard cross is really a combination of all of those. If we weren't off competing at one of the like higher elite events, uh, we would compete locally in, in, in every discipline. My body type, I'm a I'm six two I'm a pretty tall human and it sort of naturally led itself to genetically being good at border cross. Um, the freestyle background that I sort of, sort of grown up with gives me advantage on courses that are a little bit more technical. And then, you know, as a fourteen or fifteen year old, like learning the alpine aspect, those skills are still that I the skills that I still work on now. And yeah. To the people who know what they want to do when they're 13 years old, like hats off. In hindsight, now I just, I th- like I feel so fortunate that I went into snowboard cross because it's allowed me to have a pretty long career. Mm. been on the national team for almost 15 seasons. I'm 34 years old at this point. And snowboard cross, you don't really hit your prime until you're like mid to late 20s. And I've been fortunate to stay healthy and I love it. Like I love, I still love racing snowboard cross.
0: Yeah. Tell me about kind of some of the, specifics about border cross what has allowed you to continue in the sport so long you mentioned taking care of yourself you mentioned kind of the longevity
1: yeah i mean first and foremost like staying healthy staying healthy like snowboarding is incredibly dangerous snowboard cross all disciplines of snowboarding are particularly high impact right like blown out knee you know torn acls are so common um I've had two surgeries, one on my hand, one on my shoulder, but I've just, I've been really fortunate to stay healthy. And snowboarding is, was really founded in counterculture, right, it, it grew a lot of its, it got a lot of its roots from skateboarding, surfing. I grew up just again, naturally, like I, I enjoy training. I enjoy working out, it makes me feel good. And so I had started that from a very young age, um, again, with no, no pushing, no direction. And so when I came to Stratton Mountain School, Dryland training was, you know, I was in high school was taken very seriously. And even at that young age, in comparison to some of my counterparts, I enjoyed training. I got my first road bike when I was 16, I think. And that was not something that snowboarders did. But I just I, wa- I liked riding bikes. I think a dedication to just taking care of my body um, has really allowed a lot of longevity in that. And still to this day, it's it's so ironic, like there's this interesting dichotomy in snowboarding where it's like, oh, you're like a a jock, if you will. I enjoy going to the gym. I enjoy yoga. I enjoy taking care of myself. Snowboarding has this like brand image of a lot of partying. I enjoy partying. I'm not going to like shy away from that at all. It's interesting in that sometimes I felt like I wasn't taken seriously as a snowboarder because I enjoyed training so much. The thing that I think is so lame about that is like, even now at 34, I train pretty hard and I love snowboarding. I love going out. I love riding pow. I love touring in the backcountry with my buddies. I still like riding halfpipe. Whether or not I enjoy training or not, like I don't think should say anything about my love or passion for the sport, but I've always sort of had this like chip on my shoulder.
0: It's interesting because, you know, I had Andrew Ferrance on the show yesterday, who you know well as well. He talked a lot about that, actually, about how he got his start and his career was purely because of the work that he put in. He was way ahead of the game as far as um, nutrition, recovery, heart rate training, getting on the bike, doing the cross training. That's the only reason he's Andrew Ference You know, if he doesn't do those things, he doesn't make it. Um, and it sounds like it's very similar to you. You know, you may have had that natural talent, because, but because it was so important to you to put in those extra hours in the gym and do that that work you know that's allowed you to not only have the career you've had but also to continue it and it's also interesting because most sports reward the work and the the people who are in the gym are the ones that get the kudos whereas what you're saying is it's the opposite you're like well you're lame you're not cool you're not partying you're not doing this
1: i think now in today's day and age all of the elite snowboarders, everyone at the top of the game takes their health and fitness very seriously. I've been doing that for close to 20 years. So I was a little bit ahead of that curve. I do think that I have had the success that I've had because of how hard I've worked. I definitely have some natural talent, but not not like some of my counterparts, not like some of my peers who are just like, I watch them do things and I'm like, I'm gonna have to work so hard to be able to do that It was a point of frustration for a while. Like, why am I busting my ass and you're not? Now, like after all these years, I'm like, yeah, I'm psyched. I'm I'm proud of the fact that I I worked as hard as I have.
0: I've seen it in every sport that I've been involved in. There's people with more natural talent. There's people that have all the ability in the world. And for some reason, they aren't able to take it past a certain point because they're not willing or they haven't built that uh, tenacity to put in the extra work and the extra time. Tell me about um, your introduction to the olympics i know that your goal was vancouver 2010 um you didn't make the team but you got the invitation to come up as the the wax technician and and really absorb that olympics experience
1: even before that torino in 2006 was the first time that snowboard cross had been in the olympics and i was 19 at the time so you're, you're there's like this outside shot where you're like oh i, I could go and yeah. realistically like i had no shot my teammate seth uh, won the gold medal. My teammate Lindsay, uh, high school classmate of mine, won a silver medal in snowboard cross. And it's just like, it's like, okay, this is the thing. I figured over the next four years, like 2010, like I can go. I'll be 23. Like I'll have the experience. I had started to see a little bit of success. I mean, in in hindsight, it was nothing, but I, I gained some experience. And I came up short. You know, like the US uh, has such a depth of talent, especially at that time. Um, we had such a depth of talent in snowboard cross and uh, just in snowboarding in general actually. And uh,
0: yeah, I came up short. Tell me about the selection process. What is it a Is it a series of races? Is it discretionary?
1: There are there are discretionary spots. So in snowboarding, the max you can have is four per gender per discipline. So four ma- men for halfpipe, four women for halfpipe., yep. four men for snowboard cross, four women for snowboard cross. Every country is allowed to qualify in their own their own manner. Uh, they have to meet a certain like international governing body. Um, FIS is our governing body. You have to meet like a a few small criteria there, which is sort of keep people from joining some strange country and then just like getting a spot. You you still have to go through some some steps. But for us, we use the World Cup circuit, which happens every year uh, as our qualifying platform for Snowboard Cross. And at the time you had to have a top three, so a podium at one of five, Listed World Cups. Getting a World Cup podium at any point in time is never easy. In an Olympic year, when you're building all the momentum, everyone's getting ready for the games, like the level goes up even higher. I think that it's one of the more challenging qualifying processes compared to other countries. And because of that, I think you've seen that we've had a significant amount of success. Our qualifying process is really challenging. And we don't find out we're going, like, if we've made the the team until like three weeks to a month before the start of the games just to jump back like I came up short in 2010 and my coach offered me an opportunity to come up and be the wax tech and I, I had to swallow a lot of my pride it's like being the bat boy you're doing a lot of grunt work for your teammates and it was incredibly challenging like physically mentally but to your point like I got to go to the Olympic Games I got a credential I was on the hill my teammate Seth won another gold medal we call it the team behind the team Right. Like the athlete stands on the podium, but there are so many people that are there supporting that athlete. There are physiotherapists, there are coaches, there are drivers, there are cooks. Those people do so much work so that on the day that you go to compete, you have everything set up for you. And I was just like a small part of that it just like it re it made me feel like that 10 year old watching the the 96 games again it like reignited my passion to buckle down and realize how much harder i actually had to work if yeah. i wanted to get
0: there so much of what we see is the person standing on the podium and taking the glory the people who recognize their team obviously they understand the work that goes into it but i don't think those stories are told enough around the team behind the team. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a little project on that as well, coming up soon. Now, tell me about how that reinvigorated you and got you, you know, amped up and ready to go. Did you feel like you knew exactly the path you needed to take for the next four years? What did you change after Vancouver to, to get yourself ready for Sochi? Tell me about kind of what that process was like.
1: snowcross Cross is per- particular in the fact that you are competing against Three or five other people at the same time that you have absolutely no control over. In comparison to a sport like or a discipline like Halfpipe, where it's sort of on you to do your run yeah. uh, the best that you can. In snowboard cross, you are reacting so quickly, you often don't have time to think about the reactions that you have to make. Yeah. So it just takes time to build up enough repetitions to understand that, to trust that you will make the right decision without thinking about it. And so I just, I had to get some more, more heats in more time um, at that, that high level. But also I like, I dove in, I started spending a significant amount of time in Park City, Utah, uh, training with a strength and conditioning coach much more full time than I had. I mean, I had been training before that, but the difference between what I was doing when I was like 21 and 22. And even what I'm doing now is so drastically different. So getting in the gym, working with a trainer almost five days a week, I would go out to Park City. I was living in Colorado at the time. I'd go out to Park City for three months every year and live at a team house and go and train, you know, almost every day with the strength and conditioning coach. And so those like marginal gains that we you know,
0: talk about. I've always been really interested in the ability, like you talk about, to react to certain situations and how you can actually replicate that in training. Because you're not going to stand in the starting gates against five people every time you go out. And there's only so many competitions that you can do. And, you know, if you, if you miss a weekend or something goes wrong, you're waiting again. Like, how do you replicate those race-based simulations um, as often as you possibly can? To
1: be honest with you, there's no way to replicate it. Yeah. I spend a lot of time working on the basics, like the basics of turning your snowboard so that when you're reacting, your your default is to go into these like strong, stable positions. And to that point, there are only so many World Cups for us. And it's actually the number has gotten smaller and smaller. In 2015, we had three World Cups because of snow, you know, yeah. climate change finances snowboard crosses is, is an expensive sport to host for for a resort or a nation my coach has always been an advocate of going and doing those lower tier events so that you know the you have world championships the world cup is this is this top tier event yeah. and then just below that well not just but a step down from that you have circuits in north america and europe we call the noram cup and the europa cup yeah. and when you're on the world cup taking a step back and going you know i i equate it to like if you're playing in the major leagues baseball and you were to like take it a step back and go play in the minor leagues sometimes you think that you might be like too good for that like i've i've already done that in my career but going back and racing those lower tier events is such incredible training it's really scrappy the level of production the kids that are there you don't you know you're racing kids that are a lot younger they're very unpredictable and uh i've always found that We'll go and race these like scrappy Norams before we go to World Cups. And it's really like, it's a good tune-up.
0: Would there be a possibility or a thought of like, how could you, um, could you use like virtual reality or augmented reality to kind of put yourself in these simulated race situations and, and react accordingly?
1: We toyed with that for a little bit. We, we did some work with VR and some cameras. We actually, we tried a, a project going into the 2018 games in Korea. We went to a preview event and we filmed with these special cameras so that we could like relive that. It's not as beneficial for Snowboard Cross because such one of the biggest challenges is the other competitors that you are going head to head against. Whereas in Alpine ski racing, there's a huge advantage to getting to know the tracks. They go to the same tracks over and over and over again. The younger guys who have never been there don't know what that looks like. And so they can use VR to get familiar with the setup there. But for us, it's not as beneficial because the biggest challenge is like every single heat, every single run at a race is different no matter what. You really have to be adaptable.
0: It must be so frustrating sometimes. Like you could be in the best shape of your life. You've had an amazing run. Like you're just on top of your form and some clown like takes you out or you know falls in front of you or like there's so many things that you could never plan for it must be so frustrating sometimes
1: yeah we we always joke like the fastest guy or girl doesn't usually win there's so much unpredictability it is so incredibly frustrating when you do it long enough we, the, the joke is like you you give gifts and you get gifts. Yeah. There are times when you're in fourth place and somebody crashes in front of you and you get a, a free pass through the next round. Yeah. And there are other times where you're in first and second battling like way out in front and somebody clips you, that's it, your day's done. Once you've done it long enough, you just learn to understand that it is just the way that it goes. That actually, you know, that happened to me. So in 2014, um, I went to the Olympics. I was incredibly fortunate to have some success. And in the years after that, 2017, leading up to the uh, 2018 games, like, I had the best season of my career. Mm. I, I had a number of World Cup podiums. I was healthy. I, I felt good. And I came into 2018 ready mm-hmm. to the level that I thought I needed. And I actually felt like I was racing at a very, very elite level. Like I was happy with my snowboarding. Yeah. And things just did not go my way. The dominoes just did not fall in my direction, and unfortunately, I ended up going to Korea as an alternate.
0: You've been open and and somewhat vulnerable, and and talking about your truth, and talking about some of the struggles you've had mentally with, you know, depression and and postseason blues and all of these things. And I think it's been it's been great that you've been able to share those things because hopefully, it helps other people get through some of their challenges. But is that you know a part of it? There's somewhat of that. Um, unpredictability and that those feelings that kind of come up that that have you know resulted in some of the things that you've experienced
1: yes and no I, I'm still learning you know I, I'm still still learning still processing and trying to understand where that like postseason depression comes from it is it is very much a real thing and especially as a, as a male in athletics, you're supposed to be like, you're supposed to have this bravado. You're supposed to be strong and tough. And so to talk about your feelings, it's really challenging. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength. And I think you see it happening more and more, you know, Michael Phelps, like the greatest Olympian of all time, like coming out and talking about how he's dealing with depression. And it allows the, uh, the rest of us to be like, you know what, I'm not alone. I'm going to step up and I'm going to speak about this. You as an athlete, you tie so much of your self-worth and your purpose to your accomplishments and to your discipline and your results. When you don't have that thing to focus on, especially for, for me personally, I can speak to the fact that like snowboard cross, there is so much intensity. There's so much risk involved in, in, in a race. There are a lot of races where I have to talk myself up and be like, you could get hurt in right. this run and you have to like push past this if you want to succeed and it's this this like level of adrenaline and focus that I haven't found anywhere else in my life and when that fades away you have six months you know our, our off season is significantly long you're sort of left there sitting like well what now over the course of the last year I, I have started to transition um, into a career and I've I've been str- I still have been struggling with an, in a new way I identified as like, Alex, this athlete. I tie so much of my self-worth to my results and trying to separate out like who I am as a human being away from that has been incredibly challenging.
0: I'm sure I have, you know, I've never competed at the level that you have, but I still have that myself, you know, transitioning out of being an Ironman athlete and having my accident. And then all of a sudden that, you know, that career path or that idea is taken away. You know, and then you become a parent, and you your identity changes all over again. And then you still got goals, and you've so there's so many of these little elements that I can understand and respect. And for you to put yourself out there as a personality within sport and share that, I think is really meaningful and and helpful. So I appreciate you stepping up to the plate for us on that one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that I found through it is that like to that finding my purpose, I really enjoy helping people. I enjoy. You know, being a sounding board for someone that is is going through something similar, I, I put something up on social media, which is really what started that conversation. And I was amazed at how many people, friends of mine, reached out and said, hey, man, I'm going through the same thing. Now I reach out to some of those people every, like in the springtime, like, hey, how are you holding up? Sometimes people will brush you off and it's up to them if they want to open up or not. But being there, let, letting people know that you're there if they just want to shoot the shit and that they, they can vent to you. Um, has provided a lot of, I don't know, satisfaction and fulfillment.
0: And did you sp- experience, that, experience that on your own side? So when you did, you know, open up and then people do check in on you and, and reach out to you, you know, did that, was that helpful for you knowing that other people see you and care and hear and they're going through the same thing?
1: Yeah, it's more than anything. It's just, it's really nice to know you're not alone. So often you think that you're the only person with these problems in the world. I would look at my situation and be like, I'm healthy. I'm incredibly fortunate to be doing what I love for a career. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm depressed or I'm sad. You feel guilty. You feel like there are people that are struggling in the world and here I am like bummed out about the fact that like, I can't do another snowboard race. And so just knowing that you're not alone and finding people to talk to, it just, it's, it allows you to dive in and realize that it's okay. And you, it, help, it helped me learn how to process.
0: Which is hard too, because you you know, you're the feelings that you're expressing to me there is you're feeling guilty and you're feeling like, oh, why should I be sad? I've got everything going for me. It just creates this like cycle. What would be your recommendation if someone is experiencing that? Someone's feeling, especially this time, you know, we're going through this really unprecedented, I hate using that word because it's overused, but we're going through this moment in time where people are struggling there's there's no playbook for this like what would you recommend people do if they are feeling like you know they're sad depressed they're going through something that they're not sure how to deal with
1: i think the best thing you can do is to talk to people be open about it the word that you used is vulnerability that's that's a word that i'm i feel very passionate about being vulnerable is scary because it's putting yourself out there and you're risking like as an athlete you're risking somebody using that against you I think there is so much strength and power in vulnerability. And if you can put yourself out there and talk to a couple people, it doesn't have to be the internet, it doesn't have to be social media like I did, but just putting yourself out there, I think people will realize that we're not alone and finding a commonality as a human, like relating to other people is so powerful and it can, it can be enough to just give you hope that like, okay, I'm, I'm really struggling, but I'm not the only one. And in conversation, you can sometimes you can learn what other people do to deal with that. Like, are there a couple key things that someone has found use for to tie this into athletics, mental training, right? Like one thing that one person does for mental training is not going to work for everybody else. And so what one blog post you read on the Internet about how you need to exercise and create a routine like that might not pull you out of depression or sadness or anxiety but in opening up and talking to people you may find like one little nugget from someone that you can really relate to that will help start you on a path of like trying to feel starting to feel better
0: and the recognition and i think this is the most powerful thing that you shared was that it's okay not to be okay
1: it'll be interesting to look back on this time period of of social media and how it starts to adapt and change because people put their best lives on social media you want to you want to put stuff out there. It's like, hey, I'm having a good time. Like, hey, I'm doing this awesome stuff. When you see that, when that's all you see is the best version of people, yeah. you forget that there's a lot of crap that goes on behind the scenes. And yeah. so it's just, it can be challenging when when you see this perfect society on, online to really realize that, that that's not the way the world works.
0: Yeah. I think hopefully, you know, people are under, starting to understand that, that, you know, comparison really is the thief of joy. And if you're comparing your life to someone else's you're taken away from the joy you're actually experiencing for yourself um and you know you're everyone's doing it everyone puts the highlight on there so if we can recognize that everyone if we're doing it everyone else is doing it and it's okay that you know whatever it is will be and i always i just see it as a game it's a game like people are playing a game people are putting up their best stuff uh it's not real life
1: there's an interesting quote and i i apologize if I, i don't get it exactly right but it's something along the lines of comparison is the thief of joy. Like if you're comparing yourself to something
0: else, like you're robbing yourself of, of joy. I can't believe we've already run out of time. This is like the fastest 45 minutes ever. I do have three questions I want to end on, but I, before I do get into that, I just want to acknowledge I, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate um, you sharing your story and you being so open and vulnerable. And um, yeah, your knowledge is 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 amazing. So I appreciate you sharing that.
1: Yeah. I, I thank you for the opportunity to be on here. Like I went through and I looked at some of your other guests, you know, like Duke, uh, huge yeah. respect for him. Like he, he's definitely been an interesting person that I've looked up to for a long time. Caroline Burkle, is that who say her last name? Burkle? Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize she was on. Um, I follow her on social media. She and I train out of the same facility in Southern California. And I just have like so much respect for, for what she's done as an athlete. And so it's, it's cool to be a part of this conversation
0: it's really cool to look back actually and be like wow i know these people like i have a relationship with these people it's it's pretty amazing like that's been a real highlight to be reconnecting with you and reconnecting with Carol and duke and just kind of getting back into conversation in a you know a unique format it's been really fun so um three questions first one uh what's one thing that's changed for you during this isolation period that you want to keep once we go back to whatever this new normal is that we're we're approaching?
1: I think the one thing that I want to take with me out of this is really being purposeful of taking time for myself every week to recharge, just to take care of myself, like stepping away from my responsibilities as as an athlete, as you know, as in my career, whatever that is going for a run, riding my bike, unplugging, like just, and doing it purposefully, not just doing it for the sake of doing it, but being like, I'm going to go take some time for myself
0: and holding that space for yourself too because so often and I you know I can imagine that 3 weeks 4 weeks down the track you're like ah oh, I could use that hour back or I could use that 2 hour period back so like keeping accountable to yourself to keep that space for yourself second question uh what's one thing that you thought was important before isolation that you're happy to leave in the past
1: I don't know. That's that's a that's like a it's a I mean it's it's very profound, right? Like you want it you want it to be something that's like deep. I you know, this I can make it simple. (laughs) Access to restaurants. I'm always like, Oh, I need I need to just grab something real quick. I need to have food here. Like you can make easy, healthy meals very quickly at home. Like I'm definitely guilty of like when I'm on the go of being exhausted and just being like, Oh, I'll just go out and get something to eat. I've learned some new recipes and I've learned to cook and like it's it's easy. It's healthy and I am capable of making stuff that's delicious.
0: I've seen it, I've uh, been on the receiving end of some amazing rice cakes that we cooked up with Ben Jackson and Karen O'Connor down in the in the kitchen at Lululemon. Yep. Those were the days. Number three, what's been your most memorable moment of joy during this isolation period?
1: I mentioned I've been in New England for uh, quite a few weeks now and watched it go from winter to summer. There was no springtime, it was yep. snowing and now it's like 80 degrees with 80% humidity. But yesterday was a beautiful day. And uh, my mom hasn't been able to like get out and do as many things as she wants. And I took time out of my day. I'm like, hey, mom, it's a beautiful day. We're going to go sit out on the porch. We didn't have our phones. We weren't watching TV. And we didn't actually even talk about a lot of stuff. But we like just sat there, just like having an appreciation and an awareness to savor that moment was so nice, because I have been busy. And I'm like, okay, I have to take care of this. And I have to get to work and I have to train and I have to do all these things. And I was like, you know what, mom and I are going to walk out on the porch. We're going to sit in the sun. And, uh, it was so simple, but just being mindful of how fortunate I was to have that moment. Like it, it was, I really appreciated it.
0: Hold that snapshot in your head. That's uh that's an amazing moment. Well done, mate. This has been great. I've really enjoyed reconnecting. I've, lo- I've learned a lot about you. I've learned a lot about your story um, that I hadn't heard before. And, all the best to you. All the best to your mom. And uh, let's stay in touch and get on a bike soon. Once, Yeah,
1: once absolutely. I really appreciate you having me on. I love these conversations. I appreciate that you create a space where we can just be real.
0: Thanks, Alex. You have an amazing story of resiliency, and I appreciate you for sharing. I want to acknowledge you too, the listener, for being here and taking in these episodes on a daily basis. It's a lot of fun to bring them to you, and I hope you're enjoying them too. Stay tuned for more daily conversations throughout May. I'm Travis McKenzie and this is the Inner Voice Podcast.